0: Well, it's like a, it's like asking a musician to explain where their music comes from. You know, it's yeah. Just...
1: Uh, I studied accordion, but I never had the patience to learn the buttons.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the buttons, Joel. You need to learn the buttons. <laughs> Welcome to another special episode of 1980s Now, our uh, our weekly uh, podcast, which you can hear every Monday, is a examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and its continued influence today. And hey, we've got a... Oh, well, first, hey, my name is Will. And uh, joining me, as always, are my friends and co-hosts, Kat and John. Hey, guys. Hi guys. First time on the show, Will. Nice. <laughs> it's Rusty. We haven't done it in a while. I'm feeling Rusty. <laughs> Uh, Anyway, so, hey, this is really cool. So earlier this week, we were talking about uh, how important casting is, uh, Mm -hmm. some of our favorite uh, films throughout the 1980s. You know, we gave and we talked about some of the different uh, times in which the ultimate actor wasn't the first choice, where the Mm -hmm. ultimate actor or the original actor was fired or quit or Mm -hmm. whatever. Anyway, and sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, what the implications Mm -hmm. of those are. Or was Mm -hmm. too short for the costume. (laughs) Too short, yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Or was too egocentric for the copping. (laughs) Are you talking about me? Yes. All right. Listen to the episode. Jean-Claude. To uh, to go back in your trailer. To hear all about that. Anyway, but uh, so look, what you're about to hear though, however, is our conversation with a legendary casting director who knows much more about this than we uh, do, Mr. Joel Thurm. He just uh, published a book, Mm -hmm. Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, Confessions of a Casting Director. And seriously, guys, I'm going to tell, tell him this. This is truth in advertising. He has some sexy romps in this. Drugs are consumed. <laughs> and definitely oh a lot of TV shows and a few films uh, were cast. Uh, but uh, Joel was there mm. during the time, like the most pivotal time in our lives, as far as television goes, mm-hmm. uh, the 1980s. Yep, big time. Um, mm-hmm. When he was there, he was the uh, vice president of talent and casting. Working on shows like Cheers, Miami Vice, The Golden Girls, Seinfeld, L.A. Law, Chips, The Cosby Show, Facts of Life, and on and on, and I can <laughs> keep wow. going on. Turns out, Jerry Seinfeld, not the first choice for Seinfeld. Yeah, no. Oh, <laughs> That's not true at all. Yeah, no. It went to what? Johnny's fly swatter. <laughs> 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 the fly swatter. Uh, exactly. <laughs> oh right whatever that's all getting cut right okay so anyway just better make the edit so look well i was gonna (laughs) gonna say sounds like joel really enjoyed being
1: behind the scenes (laughs) oh my gosh you gotta read his book on many levels i
0: I feel like you're you're (laughs) talking more about the sexy stories the spicy stories right Uh, probably (laughs) i don't know i'll get to this with him but so i'll just tell you the druggy stories
1: (laughs) can i tell you this
0: i feel like this is talking out of school even though it's in his book no (laughs) because he dishes i'm gonna talk to him about uh the the boy in the plastic bubble a show that uh-huh. to traumatize me, a TV, me for TV film. But in that yep. film, uh, Robert Uh-oh. Reed, you know, the father from the Brady bunch plays the father to John Travolta. And okay. I, this is so, Joel, I feel so odd talking about this, even though you wrote about it, mm-hmm. but he tells what? a story in his book about how during filming, Robert Reed was really, uh, got really angry and curmudgeoning and upset and was mistreating folks. And oh, so like, Will, Oh, what? <laughs> oh, <laughs> And so, all right, this is where it's going to di- di- diverge. Maybe, okay. you didn't, maybe you didn't want to say that, cat. You want to take that out. Take oh, that no. back. Oh, no, take it back. Because out, he winds out. up visiting Robert Reed in his trailer, saying, trying mm-hmm. to help him, you know, chill out. And he starts, it starts with a massage, and it leads oh, my. elsewhere. Oh, I wow. didn't anticipate that. Okay. Whatever. No. This is getting really awkward. <laughs> anyway, that's not the only sexy story that he tells. Okay. Uh, I feel even worth saying that. Anyway, you know what? Just to change the whole mm-hmm. subject, okay? Let's let's find out more about casting in the 1980s from Joel. Okay, we'll be back in just a moment with our guest today, Joel Therm. guest today is one of Hollywood's most admired and accomplished casting directors. He played a key role in many of the most pivotal casting decisions in television history, including Cheers, The Cosby Show, Hill Street Blues, and many of the other shows that elevated NBC from Last Place Network to Must See TV. And our guest also cast three enduringly popular movies, Grease, airplane and the rocky horror picture show in his new book sex drugs and pilot season confessions of a casting director our guest takes us on the wild ride of his career from working in the theater to being part of the wise and sometimes unwise, early career casting decisions that involved many of our favorite performers. You can buy his book anywhere books are sold. Of course, to support a local bookstore, please go to bookshop.org to make your purchase. Please welcome to the show, Joel Thurm. Thank you. Uh, Hey, look, we're talking to you today about your book, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, Confessions of a Casting Director. And first thing I want to say is, the title of the book is Truth in Advertising, folks. All of those topics there are covered. <laughs> you know, it's, look, as you write in your book here, you ultimately, uh, you, you understand and that how your work has, as you say, defined the ethos of a generation. And I am of that generation. And the folks that listen to our show are, um, it's amazing. And I, I've got to say, as much as I'm interested in the behind the scenes uh, things of movies, films, TVs, et cetera, and I could and familiar certainly with casting directors, what they do. I've, I've you know, I was younger. You know, a, a girl I dated worked at a casting agent, a casting director's office. But even I felt am a culprit of not appreciating so thoroughly. I believe the work that you have done. It only occurs to me after reading your book how had other people been in certain roles, I they may not have been the shows that we love. And, and you know, <laughs> wh- why is it that you think your that type of work is not as appreciated as, as it should
1: be? Because, and I've noticed, I mean, when you are casting something, and I'll go back to airplane. Yeah. Airplane. I finished casting airplane, and the minute it was finished, the, the, not, the, not the airplane boys, but the producer, Howard Koch, yeah. that was the end of it. I never spoke to him again. Oh. In other words, your work is done. We don't need you anymore. Mm. And also, um, and I'll go to another extreme person, Alan Carr on Greece. Well, Alan Carr took credit for everything on Mm. (laughs) Grease. You know, I mean, so it's and and directors tend to do directors and producers tend to do that. Yeah, I I don't think it's willful. I really don't think it's willful. Mm. I think they genuinely forget where the idea came from.
0: Yeah, yeah. And as you rightly point out, there is not an Academy Award for casting. And wow, uh, reading that in your book, that is tragic. As you can point out, you know, there's wonderful hair and makeup. But, yeah, who are they doing the hair and makeup for? The actors that Joel found, or, you know, cast,
1: yeah. Well, blame Helen Mirren's husband, whose name I forgot. <laughs> he's the much? head of the... Well, he's the head of the Director's Guild, and okay. the Director's Guild will not do that. Yeah. It's it's Maybe it's giving away some of their power. I forgot the guy's name. He was a very good director, though. Right. Uh, except in this area. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Ian, yeah, I wonder if... It, it, it,
0: Certainly, obviously, you don't like the DGA's role in protecting directors, but there is this certainly element. Well, if you'll notice, that-
1: they protect it to the point as you will never see the word casting director, except if it's a British product. Hmm. British products list casting directors as casting directors. American hmm. products must say casting by. Yeah, <laughs> that's so silly.
0: So look, I want to get into some of the, some of the work that you did specifically, because it's just fascinating. And also, again, it's so much tied to our experience, my experience growing up and how it informed me. And, and I want to start with the boy in the plastic bubble and I'll tell you why Uh that show terrified me as a child. And not only, you know, so it's one thing to know that, you know, you, 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 To think that, you know, we're talking to you as a casting director. So, of course, you think, well, John Travolta, you know, you played a role in that, of course. But no, more than that, you're the reason we even have that film, again, that (laughs) made-for-television movie that, again, scared me into thinking I was going to get some kind of mysterious disease. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) What was it that appealed to you about that, or you would thought that that would be a vehicle for John Travolta, who was uh, on Welcome Back, Cotter at the time?
1: I... I was lucky enough. Uh, it's, it's funny because I stopped. I was just texting back and forth with John. I said, oh, oh I got to get off. I said, I have a podcast interview. Not that you would know anything about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> so, uh, no, I was very lucky because my best friend was a manager named Bob Lamont, who was sadly no longer with us, mm. but who had a superb client list. It was John Travolta, Patrick Swayze, Catherine, I mean, I can go on. Sure, and he was mm. really my best friend, mm. and he would come up to my house as I just t- t- talked in the book. Every Saturday, we would do our readings. At my, I was, I say in the book. I joke about sitting on my deck getting melanoma while reading our scripts. Right. <laughs> so, um, his star client at that time was John Travolta. At the end of his first year of Welcome Back, Cotter. and uh, John was desperate to let the world know that he wasn't Vinnie Barbarino, mm. and I. Tossed the script to John, uh, to John, excuse me, to Bob. And I said, here it is. <laughs> and bob read the script and that did, next day he sent it to Travolta and by Sunday night travolta said I want to do it wow I mean, that I mean I think all businesses regardless of it, are are based on relationships sure and i was lucky enough to have bob as not only a very good friend but also he you know he was he was important so um that's that's how but I, i'll go I'll start before that at spelling Goldberg where I was a full-time employee doing, casting mostly Starsky and Hutch, you know, terrible TV movies, except for Boy in the Bubble. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, And uh, the woman, uh, who was the one woman uh, script developer, on a Friday afternoon came into my office and looking very sad, And she said, ABC just rejected my favorite script. Mm. Can you do me a favor and read it? Uh, She said, because the only way ABC said they would do it if there was a big enough star. And I said, first of all, Cindy, it's not a favor. That's my job. (laughs) So, (laughs) Second of all, sure. So I took it home and I read it. And I just told you what happened. And then when I came in uh, on Monday, I said, guess what? She said, you're kidding. He wants to do this? You're kidding. (laughs) And we then literally walked. No, we sort of walked. No, the second one was we walked. But the first thing we did was called Aaron Spelling and Leonard Goldberg. And I'll save time by both of them saying the same thing. Oh, he's not going to do this. (laughs) So, uh, and that same reaction was from when they went to Mike. Aaron calls Mike Eisner, who was head of ABC at that point. And Mike Eiser said, oh, but he's not going to do this. He's turned everything down. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, we only knew it was real when we made a cash offer and John came back asking for triple the amount, which he got. <laughs>
0: right. well,
1: sure. And, it's, you know, so anyway, that's how it happened. Yeah. But and, and, and recently I was talking to John. We've kept up this relationship, not constantly, but we go into we go in jags of talking a lot and then not talking for a month or so. And he said the reason he did did it was because he trusted his manager, Bob, and myself, Mm. that we wouldn't recommend anything bad for him or something he shouldn't do. And I felt enormously flattered now hearing that for the first time.
0: Wow, yeah, that's fantastic. And of course, uh, you know, as I want to talk about your, your relationship with John continued, we, we, th- that was the first time I recall, and I guess the world probably realized that he wasn't uh, the Barbarino character. You know, he was exactly. much more yeah. than that. Otherwise it would be easy to think this guy just shows up in his own clothes and does this part on, on Cotter every week. But, <laughs> but of course uh, you next uh, work with John in Greece. And uh, I thought it was interesting to learn that it was John that wanted Olivia Newton John to play opposite him. And yes, thinking back on, you know, Olivia Newton John, following Greece, you know, superstardom, uh, world renowned uh, music star, continues to work with John in some other films. But at the time, what was it about Olivia that John knew of that he saw this in her as uh, his leading lady?
1: Well, honestly, I never asked that, but, um, but once one, you know, uh, John was a given the the project happened because, you know, John agreed to do it and because no way Paramount could have distributed, distributed it without John being part of it. So it was in talking to John at the very beginning, John said, what do you think of Olivia Newton, John for the, for, for Sandy? And I said, that's a great idea. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't ask why. Yeah. I didn't have to ask why. She was beautiful. She could sure. sing. She was the right age. Oh, no, actually, she's four years older than him, but I knew that they would look, uh, look the same age. Sure. Yeah. And, and it wasn't even a negative to me that she was Australian because that's taken care of by one additional line. Right. So that's, that's how that happened. And he was right. So that credit him for that.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they're obviously- and
1: also honestly, I had no decent backup,
0: mm.
1: Be either a star or a non-star. Right. And if Olivia had said no, I would have been playing the part.
0: <laughs> right, look, we would still pay for that today, Joel, to see that. And since you're friendly with John, maybe you know, friends with John still, you could maybe just straight to TikTok, as the kids say. <laughs> I don't know. Um you know talking about you said how they that one line was tweaked I was fascinated to learn, and throughout the book you you learn how you have ambitions beyond casting what's what's more surprising to me is that you're able to do more than just casting, including and maybe this was an example early on that you learned maybe maybe boundaries that needed to be uh i don't know uh be aware of was doing some rewrites on the script for the film oh. wow
1: <laughs> if you well. They're both dead, so I can really dish them.: okay. <laughs> But I would have said it while they were alive, too. Yes. But um, I, Bronte, uh, Alan Carr well, Alan Carr, of course, you probably know, would take credit for, you know, building the Washington Monument <laughs> if he could. Um, he and Bronte Woodard got co-writer, or whatever credit. The point is they did a superb job. again, superb job of opening the musical script for the movie. Mm. Brilliant job. What they did a terrible job was changing all the dialogue. (laughs) Now, I knew, and this goes back to my uh, Broadway days uh, with Hello, Dolly, which I I cast the Pearl Bailey version. And that I read somewhere that Gower Champion, who directed Dolly, which was based on an earlier play by Thornton Wilder called The Matchmaker, Whenever he was in trouble with rehearsing Dolly and the dialogue didn't work, he pulled out a copy of The Matchmaker and in went that dialogue.
0: Wow, oh, okay, sure.
1: So when, when it comes to the movie, I did exactly the same thing. Wow. And Olivia was smart enough. Uh, again, when people talk about Olivia, instead of leading off with how beautiful and wonderful, they should lead off with how smart. Mm. Fortunately, we never do that with women. Yes. But um, Olivia said, I'm not sure I want to do this. I'm too, I'm eight, too old. I'm, I, I'm not a great actress. She asked for a screen test. Wow. And during the screen test, we were using the movie Dialogue and uh, with the director, Randall Kleiser, of course, and uh, no laughter from the crew. If the crew ain't laughing, you got a problem. Uh, the, the second take and the third take, still no laughter. So I pulled out my Samuel French copy of it. And I said, ah, oh, here's why it's not laughing. And gave the original musical play dialogue to Randall, who gave it to, to John and Olivia. The next take, the crew is laughing. Wow. See, that's something yeah. a casting director wouldn't normally do. Right. I mean, I always kind of... I mean, I did things that, I did the normal things that a casting director does, but I, sure. I always thought outside the box.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Which was a problem sometimes because I never thought inside the box. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and someone wanted you, some people want you to stay in the box. Joel, get back in your box.
1: Well, everybody did, but fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> <You know?
0: laughs> well, hey, we're grateful. So you made me think, oh yeah, so and it's it's kind of, look, you're, you, I don't have to tell you, but it's really fascinating how many of your, so much kismet in your life, it seems like, so, so much, what you say at some point in the book, you don't believe in coincidence anymore, and it's even that idea that your experience in theater, which is where you, you know you, you started, would play even a, a small role in helping make this you know blockbuster ultimately a blockbuster cult <laughs> film.
1: It's you know you're right. I look I look over my life, and I have you know I I had a boyfriend. Yes, I'm gay. Ha ha. You know, <laughs> big news. Um, who firmly believe there are no coincidences. Yeah. And I've come to believe that you know absolutely a hundred percent. Is it a coincidence that I was working for David Merrick, and I and I became a company manager, then casting director for Pearl Bailey Dolly.
0: Right.
1: I became friends with Pearl Bailey, and Pearl Bailey said to me one day, "ABC is giving me a variety show. Do you want to come to California and work on it?" And I said, "Sure." Why not? You know, none none of my career has been yeah. planned and thought out. It's always been, yeah. Why not?
0: Yeah. yeah well, wow. And how it's and it worked out well. Um, yes. Yeah, <laughs> and even your stories at the beginning of the book, where you're talking about your personal, personal journey to ultimately getting to casting television and films. Again, just sort of uh, again. I I, also, I agree with your boyfriend. I don't believe, I don't believe in coincidences either. Always. Even when something bad happens, it's like, okay, maybe what I got to take a bigger sort of look at what's going on here. Maybe. But uh, you you talked about uh, earlier about your casting of airplane. And again, talking about how appreciating your work uh, played a role based on your book. It was you coming to the creator saying, you've got an over the top parody. Let's cast these well-known dramatic actors. What is it? Where does that come from? I mean, I think most folks would think, you know, we're going to hire the best comedians we can.
1: Well, I, I think part of that is that I, I, I read the script and I knew yeah. it wouldn't be funny if it, if you had comedians in the in the in that in those roles. Yep. I just knew it, and. I can't really explain it more than that. It's just, it, it, it cried out for, the, the only person who I knew per- well was Lloyd Bridgest because I'd worked with him on a couple of projects before and I knew that he could go both ways. You know, he could be straight or he could be funny and I knew he would have the sensibility to do it. I didn't know Robert Stack. I didn't know, you know, well, I forget who else was in it. Leslie Nielsen. Lizzie, well, Leslie Nielsen's a whole other story, but after okay. Robert Stack, Next choice was Hugh O'Brien. Sure. I mean, they were all those, those same kind of people. And Leslie Nielsen, I've got to tell you, got the part because we went to every single famous actor who played a doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, from Jack Klugman to Richard Chamberlain. <laughs> and they all said no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, the boys, meaning the Zuckers, sure. had seen Leslie Nielsen on a late night talk show being very funny. And that was the beginning of how Leslie Nielsen got in this, got in this piece. Right. Oh, by the way, the casting suggestions that came down from Paramount were ludicrous. Mm-hmm. Were absolutely mm-hmm. ludicrous. So it was, and and the boys were thankful that Paramount was doing the movie, but at the same time, I think the only person on a list who got in, that on Paramount's list that got into the movie was Jimmy Walker.
0: Mm, right.
1: I don't know if you remember him in the movie, but he's he's the one, the window washer of the airplane.
0: Okay, wow! Because yeah.
1: that was very popular and not popular, but in New York, panhandlers would wash oh, your yeah. window, back the buck.
0: Yeah, yes, I I recall that about New York, especially too. <laughs> and um, look, you essentially gave Leslie Nielsen a new career. You know, he had only been in dramatic parts till then, and. Folks saw his potential and he got leveraged in, you know, uh, so many uh, vehicles after that that were hilarious.
1: Well, he became the boy's muse, if you mm-hmm. will, because they were involved with all of his subsequent projects. You know, all the TV series. I forgot what it was called. The
0: police squad. Yeah. He,
1: he was their perfect muse. He really was. Yeah. And Peter Graves got in the movie because how do I say this? Not delicate. When I was a little kid, I was in love with Peter Graves. Mm-hmm. I wanted him badly to be my father oh. because I watched Saturday morning television where he had a show. He had a kiddie show, a kid's show, oh. a half hour black and white thing called, then the show, was name was called Fury. The story about hmm. a horse okay. and the boy who loved him. Right.
0: <laughs> right. And that was the whole title.
1: Occurred, that was, well, that, that was the voiceover that came oh. over after the title. <laughs> Right. And, and, uh, and it was, a, um, what do you call it? It was the airplane thing. It was, uh, the boy's father, a uh, little boy in the, in the, in the television. Pre- he was a pilot. Right, right, right. So there was so many con- confluences or yeah. conflu or whatever.
0: Yeah. And talking about conflui, uh, I thought it was, <laughs> what is it like to, uh, as, you know, you're younger, you see Ethel Merman in, in 59 performing on stage. And then an airplane there, the boys are talking about, we need an Ethel Merman type. And you're like, let's get Ethel
1: Merman. No, my, my exact phrase was, well, have you ever thought of Ethel Merman? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and which, and, and they said, would she do this? And I said, she's in makeup and circling the building. <laughs> You know, it's just that's certain things a casting director would know. I yeah. mean, you know, why wouldn't she do it? What is the experience
0: of admiring these folks, Peter Graves, Ethel Merman, and then ultimately getting to work with them, hire them even, give them work?
1: Well, it, it, it all started because um, I was an unathletic kid yeah. when it came to anything involving a hand, an eye, and a ball. I have <laughs> no hand-eye coordination. All right. I excelled at everything else. I was a great swimmer. I was a great runner. I, 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 in my mid-50s, I was a long-distance bicycle rider. So, Because um, what I did, but because in, in Brooklyn, you know, you played stickball in the street. I couldn't right. do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I spent, I was indoors watching television from, you know, from, from, we were the last family on the block, by the way, to buy a television. Mm-hmm. But my mother encouraged my movie going. And on Saturdays, I would go to the movies, and I would go for the kiddie show, and then I was allowed by my parents to stay for the adult movies later on. Mm-hmm. So, and and my my brain acquired this uh, library or whatever of all oh. these act what they did.
0: Yeah, and it's you know I think about uh, was it Malcolm Gladwell right? We talked about the ten thousand hours, outliers. Your ten thousand hours were spent consuming this. And look, I consumed a lot of television and film, but my brain didn't you know, develop these sort of connections the way yours did. It's really fascinating.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm having a brain scan on Friday. Maybe I'll ask <laughs> it.
0: You've got something that other people don't have. Yeah, I'm sure. Something like that. <coughs> well, we'll
1: that. find out on Friday. Yeah. I'll let you know.
0: Right. Okay, good. We look forward to that. Um, so, <laughs> look, talking about, again, how much your work played an important, uh, part of our, again, sort of our, certainly our entertainment, our pop culture of that decade. But again, for, especially when you're growing up, right. Just like you're talking about your experience growing up, watching these films, these TV shows, I had a similar experience in the seventies and eighties where it has an emotional impact on you and it's developmental, you know, you're, or you're, it's during a developmental time in your life. Uh, but ultimately, and I know where sort of, you know, folks will read the book. They'll get your history a little more better. You've, so much to go over but i want to talk about how you ultimately joined nbc in the early 1980 in 1980 right when it's uh it's the it's the least least popular network now we know spoiler alert folks it's going to become different by the time joel's you know done with it but what is it you had so much success at success at that point what is it like going you know, from company to company having these various successes. And now you're at the, you know, three, the third out of three television networks.
1: Well, yeah. Well, I guess the, and the only thing that connect, the thing that connected all three of them was Fred Silverman. Oh. Talk about 80s. He was at, at CBS when I was there. And then he left CBS to go to ABC. And then he left ABC to go to NBC. And by that time, Fred was uh, trusted me, you know, and right. underneath Fred, Another person who became incredibly important to me and that was brandon tartikoff sure and um and I, I what happened was i i had left uh i guess i had left spelling goldberg where i was head of casting to go to paramount to become their head of casting but uh, paramount television but i was bored there was nothing really there for me to do you right. know uh, so um then I got the offer from NBC to become head of talent for NBC. Ironically, the offer came from my boss at CBS who is currently doing that job at NBC who wanted to move on to something else. <laughs> oh. And the only way Fred Silverman would let her move on was if she got somebody to replace her. <laughs> <laughs> so I fit the bill. Wow. Because I, I also knew... NBC was in the toilet then. NBC was less than zero. The joke was, if you wanted to end the Vietnam War, put it on NBC. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, uh, and Brandon Tartikoff was incredibly supportive,
0: right.
1: incredibly supportive. And um, and I knew I knew when to say, Brandon, you're wrong. And or to eventually, you know, say, yeah, Brandon, you were right. Right, but right. He he gave me tremendous authority and I guess power. I hate to use the word power. Mm-hmm. The job itself has built-in power. Sure. I didn't I didn't I didn't realize then how you had the ability to change people's lives for both the positive and the negative. Sure. Right. right. And this day my one regret is several times not thinking of that.
0: Mm. So while you're there look I'm just going to name some of the shows that were during that decade and I want to ask you about a few of them here. Um, But during your time there at NBC, we're talking about Miami Vice, Golden Girls, Seinfeld, L.A. Law, Cosby Show, Hill Street (laughs) Blues, Remington Steel, Night Court, on and on and on. Um, But I want to talk, if you can tell us about the time, let's see, one of your first uh, assignments there, casting the powers of Matthew Starr, which (laughs) we, we know starred Peter Barton. Yes, uh, That short-lived show, which, uh, which I, look, there's so many shows also that you mentioned that I'm like, I love that show. I didn't realize it was only on for six episodes or whatever. But ultimately, Peter Barton is the star of that show. But you passed on someone who who now is uh, uh, the largest movie star in the world.
1: <laughs> the biggest? Yes, yeah, no, no biggest. I, 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 I stupidly made a mistake about Tom Cruise. Yeah. Well, if you could make mistakes. I made a mistake about Tom Cruise and I made a mistake about Don Johnson from Miami Vice. Mm. OK, right. if you're going to make mistakes, make big ones. Yeah. <laughs> and Admit them. Right. That's that's the, if you don't admit them and don't laugh at yourself. I mean, what's the point?
0: Right. Sure. Yeah. Did you, and at the time you tell the story about, I believe, it's your casting assistant that uh, is, yeah. is telling you, you know, I think you're missing something here. What didn't you see that ultimately the world saw, I guess? i, I can
1: tell you what I think it was. Yeah. Um, he did a feature film called Taps. Sure. That was the first big, I mean, he was in a, this, this uh, risky business was later, right? but he had done Taps and he played a villain in Taps. Mm. And he played a villain so well that that was my impression of him. There's right. a, something in television casting that doesn't exist in feature films. And that's the thing. And I hate this word. Is he likable? Is mm. she like? Right. Well, you know, it, 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 was Kevin Spacey likable in what was that the, the cable series he did? No, yeah. but it was kind of, mm-hmm. right. Likability became much less of a factor later on, but at that time, and it was very important. And I didn't think Tom Cruise was blind.
0: right. Gotcha.
1: You know, it was, it, and by the end, and Mary was absolutely right. What she told me, what she said to me at the time was, she said, "Joel, you told me don't rely on a on a screen test alone." And she was right. And I was wrong. Right. By the way, she replaced me at Paramount. So it was okay.
0: (laughs) Oh, very good. And of course, Tom's going to be fine. I think I have see good things for that kid's future. He'll be okay.
1: Yeah. I have to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. But talking about, I guess, you know, getting it right. And look, we talked about some of the careers that uh, you helped revive, like Leslie Nielsen. There's a number of other folks who you put on the map in a sense, because again, you don't know what would have happened if you hadn't, but there's folks that you helped, uh, Uh, start their career, certainly, and I'm talking about uh, Cheers, where when you're talking about casting uh, or talking about the folks there that you had to compete with at the studio that wanted somebody else, they really wanted William Devane in the Ted Danson part, but you saw something else in Ted that they didn't.
1: (laughs) Oh, God, you're leading me. Uh, (laughs) What's my job? The thing is, first of all, let's say William Devane not only is a wonderful actor, he was also I knew who I spent time with, you know, uh, all in theatrical situations, but I knew him very well. And he was a brilliant actor. He had done Missiles of October, blah, blah, blah. And he was exactly what was written in the script. Mm. That's exactly the way the character was described. But I thought Ted... Was Ted gave you something else? And as I and and this is my big argument with Grant Tinker, who then had replaced Fred Silverman because Fred was fired, and Grant and Grant Tinker, who had been a boss of mine at MTM, took over. And as I'll never forget this, uh, after three people auditioned, and the the other man who auditioned is God, his name just went in my head football player Fred Dreyer. Okay, so those. Those were the three guys who auditioned. Fred was dismissed because he wasn't funny at all. Right. But then this room, if you can imagine, and not one woman is in this room making this decision about a <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, it went around the room a couple of times and it boiled down to Grant Tinker wanted Bill Devane and I wanted Ted Danson. And finally I said, Grant, more women are going to want to fuck Ted Danson than <laughs> Bill Devane. <laughs> and Grant, who is very popular, very Polite, and I mean, come on. He was—he was always dressed like he came out of a Brooks Brothers catalog, with with a Easter colored cashmere sweater draped around his shoulders. When he said the word "fuck," he visibly made a movement as if he was clutching his pearls. <laughs>
0: He got the vapors, yeah.
1: And 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 years later, Ted never knew this story till about a year ago. And he said, "You're kidding? That happened?" And I said, "Yes."
0: <laughs> and it's true today about women and Ted Danson.
1: And the show lasted eleven years, so I guess I, I I was right.
0: And of course, opposite Ted Danson, you you cast Shelley Long again. That that a couple that defined the will they won't they sort of trope of romantic yeah. comedies from then on.
1: Yeah, and I've got to say Shelley was everybody's choice. There was no question about that. Right. You know, the the, the the Jimmy Burrows and the two Charles brothers wanted Shelley Long. Everybody, everybody knew her, so she was she was a lot from day one. And I think the brilliance came when replacing Shelley with Kirstie Alley. Mm. Yes, that was it. Wasn't me, by the way, okay. but it was really.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, no, absolutely. But what was you was uh, another, again, sort of uh, iconic uh, family couple uh, talking about the who played the mother and father on Family Ties. Oh. You, you wind up uh, advocating for, ultimately, who is, is casting that, Michael Gross and Meredith Baxter. How is it that? Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, you know, it, it's, it's uh, Gary Goldberg, who wrote Family Ties, a brilliant, brilliant writer. And he came in with what he thought was his dream cast. The, the first person he, you know was Donna McKechnie hmm. instead of Meredith Baxter, and Donna will be the first person to tell you that she's not an actress, and um, you know she's a magnificent dancer, as anybody knows who's seen Chorus Line. So, and the end, uh, he brought in he, Chris Sarandon, Christopher Sarandon, Academy right. Award nominee for several things, but he they, they wasn't funny. And a casting director's brain, or my brain, when I have my scan on Friday. <laughs> What suddenly popped into my head and don't, you can't ask me why it popped into my head, but it did. I remembered meeting Michael Gross. I had met Michael Gross after seeing him perform in the play Bent on Broadway starring Richard Gere. And he played a German drag queen, an Mm -hmm. evil drag queen. (laughs) But when I met him afterwards, in addition to not being an evil German drag queen, (laughs) his, his voice sounded, if you close your eyes, he sounded like Alan Alda. Yeah, absolutely. What's wrong with that? And he does. And I brought him in and he got the part. That's amazing. By the way, Michael J. Fox was not my idea. That was the wonderful, wonderful casting director, Judith Weiner. Right. But what I did was fight with Brandon because Brandon didn't want uh, Michael. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Look, we can't imagine. I know you mentioned, I think it was Matthew Broderick that was also up for the role, who ultimately went on to, to star on Broadway instead.
1: Yeah. That was the first choice, and right. he was not available. On the second choice, I've forgotten name, but he went on to do the lead oh, uh, in Gremlins.
0: Yeah. Z- Galligan, Zach Galligan, yeah.
1: There's this Canadian kid who's in town who, and Judith and I had a great relationship. And I had offered her a job at NBC and she wanted to be independent and take it. But Judith had superb taste, right. superb taste. So um, as you know, she was also the, the casting director for Golden Girls. So she was brilliant. But you also have to know who, who are the same way, the same way a casting executive, which I was at NBC at that time, has to know who are the good casting directors right. and the right. bad casting directors.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so fascinating. And um, folks should definitely read the book because there's way more than we could cover here including the the true life story that is Joels that ultimately should be a made for tv movie and you know at the end of this you're going to have to tell me who will play who should have played you
1: Ben Platt should play right, me right. in these girls <laughs> oh he's fantastic yeah that would be great
0: so again we talked about uh, folks that you helped a number of uh, folks or uh, 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 be discovered and you had two casting assistants right casting assistants in ten year period of time, and one of them yep. happened to be the matriarch of ultimately uh, a family of very talented uh, actors.
1: Okay, now to be to be accurate, these were secretaries. Okay, secretaries. All right, so uh, oh, yeah, the secretary. They were my and and I think that I pat myself on the back for in ten years only having two secretaries. Right. <laughs> Because, you know, I, I'm, I'm a very good boss, or I think I was a very good boss. Well, they'll, they'll testify too, but you're talking about a woman whose name then was Arlen Phoenix. right? And Arlen Phoenix, the minute she walked into my uh, uh, office— uh, By the way, Arlen Phoenix was not recommended by NBC's Human Resources. I had called a friend of mine at NBC and said, he said, they're all horrible. He said, but I had a temp by the name of Arlen Phoenix. Make it, Tell NBC that's who you want. <laughs> uh, <laughs> see remember there were no coincidences uh, yep absolutely yeah oh, arlen walked in and the minute she walked in the office i i knew it was a match she got my new york humor i got her new york humor because she's from the bronx Oh, and um everything that she said why she couldn't do the job i countered <laughs> <laughs> You know, and then I knew she had she she had told me she and her husband had kids that she thought uh, would would be would be you know right for show business, and that's the reason they moved to California. So the first one was River Phoenix, right? Of course. Well, we are River, and the second one he was then Leaf, right? Oddly enough, Leaf Leaf was my favorite. Mm. But I love I love his sisters too. But Leif was my favorite because he looked like he needed a hug mm. all the time. You know, and he had yes. incredible eyes, which by the way belonged to his father. Mm. Was an image of his mother and and Leif Joaquin was an image of his father. Right. And, you know, I got them their first agent. You know, I, I said, you know, and and I love this because the woman was this gruff woman with leathery skin and shoe-polished black hair. Uh, When she met them, she said, she met the whole family. And she said, you mean I got to do the whole fucking family if I just want... (laughs) And she said, well, all right. (laughs) And to show you what a great person Joaquin and his family are, they stayed with her even when Joaquin became a star. Wow! Mm-hmm. Now he went on to CAA. I think was the big yes. He went on to CAA, but CAA had to give a percentage of their commission to Iris till she wow. died. Oh no, kidding! Well, that shows you what a wonderful family they are. That's why they get a whole chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: and uh, yeah, and it's it's look again this sort of full, in a full circle moment. We have your book, thanks to. Uh, yes. the, the Phoenix family as well. Right. Who encouraged you yeah, to, kept, to document your tales.
1: Except what I, what I, uh, what do you call it? What, what's the word? Uh, what I, I spoke to his mother the other day and I said, okay, well, will he give me a blurb or do something? And she said, well, you know, well, well, I said, come on, it was his suggestion. I write the book. <laughs> But by the way, I did give—I don't know if you saw this, but Anderson Cooper interviewed him on 60 Minutes. But the only time Joaquin has ever given interviews was the run-up to the Academy Awards for The Joker, mm-hmm. if, you'll, if you remember. And I gave—60 uh, uh, Minutes called me for background— and my background line was that I, what I think about Joaquin, I said, he's a wonderful actor and a terrible movie star. <laughs> and Anderson used that line on, on Joaquin. And he said, a good friend of yours said, and he broke up. He absolutely broke up. I think he knew where the line came from.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would suspect, yes, as close as you are, he would know that. How you feel about reboots? Uh, you know, we've got properties now coming back, including some that you originally
1: worked on. I can see no reason for not rebooting Punky Brewster. <laughs> <laughs> there are some, some yes, you know. Um, yeah, uh, so much of
0: you know re- reboots. We, we look generally my init- my gut reaction to when I hear something that I love from from years ago is getting rebooted is why. But now, you know, part of it for me is thinking about it. And the next thought is, well, you'll never be get a better than, you know, in whatever actor was cast in this part.
1: Well, I, I think you're right. But also, it's a whole different audience. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not an accountant. Yeah. My brother, sister and father were. But mm-hmm. I can't, I don't know how many years later it is since the 80s. And, you know, we're we're not the audience that counts anymore. So the people who are seeing these shows are seeing them for the first time. So True. they may not know what they're missing.
0: Hey, they don't know what they're missing. But Joel, thanks to your work throughout <laughs> your entire career, we will never forget. Certainly I won't forget in the folks listening to this show right now because, look, the characters, the shows that you worked on, seriously, stay with us in some way uh, and have since then. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate this.
0: Joel reveals so much more in his book, "Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season: Confessions of a Casting Director," than we could practically discuss uh, on a certainly on a single episode. But we we need a series. He needs a series. He needs a, a made-for-TV. Uh, series at least right so be sure and in, in check out his book again everywhere books are sold it's available you don't want to miss it it's told just the way you heard joel speaking to us today it's written in that voice so it's uh it's a real fun and easy and entertaining and informative read about uh how many of the television shows and films that we love uh were cast okay hey on behalf of Cat, John, and myself, we will talk to you next time on 1980s Now. This podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness.